Hi, it's Jackie, and today's podcast features one of my favorite theologians, and it's kind of hard to summarize what we're talking about today because we're covering a wide range of things, like what happens when tragedy hits and God seems silent. We're also going to talk about immigration and power and privilege, Me Too stuff. I guess if I had to sum it up, I'd say that this conversation boils down to our well, beholding a bigger vision of who God is and how he loves. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Um, Many of you have been listening to my podcast for a while, and I suspect it's raised a few questions You've got some thoughts, some insight, and a whole lot of questions. And so I thought, hey, bring them on. I thought it might be interesting for you to ask the questions that are roaming around in your head, and I'll try to address one of them here on this podcast. So here's how we're going to do this. You can leave me a message at 214-790-7939, or you can post it on our Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group. I'd love to hear what you're thinking, and let's dialogue a little bit, and if possible, let's talk about it on this podcast. Okay, so today, Carolyn Custis James. As I've said, Carolyn is one of my favorite female scholars, and Christianity Today happens to agree. In 2013, they named her one of the 50 evangelical women to watch. She has authored a ton of books. Go on over to Google, order all of them. They won't disappoint, promise. Carolyn's been interviewed on Associated Press and the National Public Radio. She's an adjunct professor at Missio Seminary up in Philadelphia, and she has taught men and women all over this country and beyond. And in this conversation, she's going to expand our mind about who God is and how he loves So welcome, Carolyn. It's a privilege to have you with us. Well, it's always a privilege to talk with you. (laughs) So um, I find it funny that I've held your book. Your book, Finding God in the Margins, is actually a tiny little book. It's thin. And I was thinking about how deceiving it is when someone receives it. Because you could almost have the impression, oh, I'm going to whoop right through this. It's the four chapters. You're talking about the four chapters found in the book of Ruth, which for those of you listening don't know, that's a story that you can find in the Old Testament. And so you have you hold this tiny little book and you think, oh, I'll just whip right through it. But it packs a punch. I mean, it literally addresses all the things I said in the opening of this podcast. So uh, I want to dive right in and ask you, um, the book of Ruth opens up with this blow by blow account. Set the stage for us. Share with our listeners what happens in the first 
eight verses of the book of Ruth because I suspect those who've ever even, if they've even ever heard the book of Ruth taught, they totally weren't taught these first eight verses. So tell us about that. Well, probably before I do that, I should reorient us to this book because it's it's been traditionally taught to us as a Cinderella story. Um, the the book is named for Ruth, and um, in the story, uh, calamity, as you say, strikes in the first the first five verses are just sort of disastrous. Um, the story is about women. And the story involves a marriage and the birth of a child. And it gets taught to us like this young woman named Ruth is a damsel in distress. And here comes Prince Charming to her rescue. And she proposes marriage and he accepts and everybody celebrates. And what we forget is this the beginning of the story, the first five verses get lost and we lose the benefit of the deep ministry that this book can have to us. You know, you say this little book packs a punch, but I have to say the book of Ruth went off in my life like a, like a bomb. I mean, this may be little, maybe it's a grenade, <laughs> but it's, it had an explosive impact on me because the, the first five verses um, are about Ruth's mother-in-law. And the book of Ruth is really her story. And um, you won't understand the book of Ruth if you don't leave American shores and travel to other parts of the world where cultures are um, defined by full-fledged patriarchy. So the very fact that there's a book here about women is a break in the ancient patriarchal culture. Um, the book starts with the story of a man and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. Under patriarchy, a woman's value is defined by the men in her life. So who is her father? Who is her husband? But the kicker is, who are her sons? And you get and you value a woman in the patriarchal world by the number of her sons. Count her sons. And Naomi begins in this story as a woman who can hold her head up high. She has done her duty for her family by producing two sons. And that means the family will survive for another generation. But a woman's duty is to produce sons. And if you read the stories in the Bible of women who are barren, they are not praying for daughters. Right. They're, they're praying for sons. Yep. So the story begins where Naomi can hold her head up high, but the first thing that happens um, is that we learn that there is a famine in the land. 
And this famine was was it going to be long term? It was severe, and it led them to take the family to a place where there was food. And so they go to Moab, which is today's Jordan. And when they get there, the very thing they're trying to escape strikes because her husband dies. And now she's a widow, but she has two sons. That's sort of double insurance for her. Um, Those two sons marry Moabite women. They marry foreign women. Um, And that in itself would be a calamity. But what is worse is that they're there for 10 years. And during those 10 years, there isn't a single positive pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. So both of these young women are are certifiably barren. 10 years is sort of a marker where their husbands would be looking for wife number two or three to make up this difference. And at the end of 10 years, instead of a positive pregnancy test, what happens is both sons die. And the killer verse for Naomi is the fifth verse that says that Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So it's, this is the story of a female Job. And Naomi has just landed at ground zero of her own story. Only unlike Job, she doesn't get a fresh start because she's past childbearing years. So it's like it's a total wash. And it means that the book of Ruth is about God and about our struggles with God, because that's what Naomi enters. And the book of Ruth is not about Cinderella and it's not about Prince Charming. The book of Ruth is about God and it's about when the lights go out, when the bottom drops out, when we can't see any sign of him and we've lost all sense of purpose and meaning in our stories. So we need her, especially now. Right we now, need her. yes. She, her story applies to us very much right now. Yeah. So before before we get into the hope, or actually her pain and then even her hope, let's just, you, you said something very interesting there, and that is this idea that the Bible is not um, an American nor a Western book, and that we have to leave our shores in order to really understand what God is trying to tell us there. Um, you also remind us that you talked about patriarchy, right? And one of your statements that now has become somewhat famous is patriarchy is the background of the Bible, but it is not the message of the Bible. And you argue right. in this book that the message is actually, um, if we're going to talk about men and women, it's about this this word that you give is called the blessed alliance. So share what, with us what you mean by the blessed alliance and and why you see the book of Ruth, among many other things, which we will get to, but a critique of patriarchy. Well, I always go back to Genesis 1 and 2 because that's the only pre-fall text that we have. And that's where God is vision casting for his world. And that's what we lose in chapter 3. And that's what Jesus came to recover. 
And so when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, um, God is creating his human beings to be his image bearers, to be his representatives in the world, to do his work. God isn't doing everything without us. He works through us to accomplish his purposes in the world. And he calls male and female to rule and subdue creation, not to rule and subdue each other, but to rule creation on his behalf for the flourishing, the cultivation, the utilization, the stewardship of it all. And, um, you know, not to exploit, but to care for it. And it's, it's both of them. There's not a man job and a woman job. Um, and at the end of creation, he looks at male and female together. And he gives them this mandate that, that still applies. And he blesses them. And that's why I call it the blessed alliance, that the, that the, that the partnership, the collaboration of male and female is, is not just, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a woman in, on our committee? Kind of right. stuff. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a kingdom strategy. This is how God means for his work to be done in the world. And it's the same. There's no differentiation. And, you know, a lot of people argue, well, yeah, the, the man was created first and then the woman. But you cannot read the book of Genesis without the concept of primogenitor, which is the primacy of who's the firstborn, um, being utterly destroyed. You know, God isn't choosing the firstborn. He doesn't choose Ishmael. He chooses Isaac. He doesn't choose Esau. He chooses Jacob. He doesn't choose, choose Reuben or Levi or Simeon. He chooses Judah and Joseph, you know, four and 11. And David, King David, was number seven. So, you know, it doesn't hold up. And in this, in the second chapter of Genesis, when God has created the man and looks at the man and says, it's, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's, it's a blanket statement. He's not saying it's not good for the man to be alone if he wants to start a family or if he's, you know, if, if, if he's lonely and needs a wife or it's, it's a blank, a blanket statement. It's not good for the men to be alone without what God is about to create. And that is the Azer Commando. And um, that is the language that's used for the women there is strong language. It's um, language that's used for armies. It's language that's used for God as, as the helper of his people. And it's always in a military context. And even the Garden of Eden, there's an enemy planning an attack. So the woman is created, I believe, to be a warrior alongside the man for the purposes of God, for the goodness of the world, um, you know, and to be strength for one another. And that it's not an op 
option. It's a necessary arrangement. So when you come to the book of Ruth, you start out with calamity, but you're going to see that both women in this story live into this calling. So I love, I love how you bring out that aspect of Ruth being this Hesed love, this act of faith, and that actually is this Hesed love that God is showing toward Naomi in her despair. And, um, you know, my, I, I mentioned before, my daughter has worked with um, immigrate, immigrants for three years, both in Texas and then also lived in a shelter on the border of Mexico and Guatemala. And um, mm-hmm. she, she, it's fascinating some of the observations and stories she shared with us. And, and one of them was just that um, these people walk uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And as they are walking, and they're, they're walking for hope, right? This idea that something is better in their future than what's happening in the present. And the present is so bad that they're willing to risk everything, leave their home, which nobody wants to leave their home or their land, you know? They'd much prefer to stay there, but they leave because, well, they're either threatened with murder or unable to eat. The same reasons that Naomi leaves, right? There's there's desperation. They've got to feed their kids, so they go to a foreign land. And so Madison was just sharing how these people travel and they walk through this journey up towards, you know, Mexico from, from middle of Latin America. And, and every single person walking, every single person, she said, experiences either rape or a beating, extortion, robbery. And so every single person that came into their shelter has experienced serious trauma. And one of her jobs was when they come into the shelter, she has to hear their stories. They say, you know, to take intake and to hear their stories and to record if there have been any human violations, and then she would report that to the UN. And I asked her one time, well, Madison, you know, what is the human rights violation? She goes, Mom, every single person has had it happen. Every single person. And then um, she said one of the questions she had to ask people is, well, where are you heading? And this almost makes me cry because she said, Mom, every single person almost would say something like, I don't know, but God's going to take care of me. Or Mm -hmm. I don't know, but God knows where I need to go. And so she said this most profound statement. She said, you know, Mom, in all the years I've grown up in the church and around Christians, I've never seen people with more faith and more hope. And I think about that. These people had been raped and beaten and paid a heavy price, right? But they continue to believe that God has them in their hands and they have hope that something in the future is better than the present. And then the second thing she shared with me that was really fascinating is that you would think that these people who are moving along and have endured such trauma are more meek or shy because they can't speak the language, can't understand you, they don't understand the customs. So, you know, we tend to hold back instead of boldly move in. And she said, that's not the case with the women. She said, you you wouldn't be surprised at how bold they are. Like, they go for it. They, They demand things because they can't afford not to. They won't mm-hmm. eat, but more importantly, their kids won't eat. And so yeah. this idea, I see a Ruth, right? This story of Ruth and Naomi, and I, you know, listening to my daughter's stories, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these are immigrants just like the, the people my daughter is dealing with, where there's great danger, and yet there's also great faith and hope, and also um, some real boldness. I mean, Ruth is bold, 
she, she's, yeah. a, she's demanding, like, this isn't going to, we're not going to do this, you know? So I want to take us to the fields because there's again, where she gets demanding, if you will, you would think she would hold back, right? Cause here she is. It's very obvious. She's a foreigner in the land, in this field. And, and yet she, she asked for things that I don't think most people would have the guts to ask for. Um, but you say, you know, so she's in the field. She's going to do some gleaning, which you can speak to in a minute. But you say, you know, that this is an honor-shame culture, which it is that they're in. And so gleaning would be the equivalent um, in our world to a person digging through the garbage for a leftover hamburger that somebody threw away. And it's during this time that she does this gleaning that Boaz comes into the picture. And there's where we see Ruth do this really challenging thing. So share with us what happens. Well, none of it makes sense if we don't take seriously what she does when she digs in her heels and tells her mother-in-law that she will never leave her and that she embraces Naomi, Naomi's people, and above all, Naomi's God. So, I mean, for me, the book of Ruth was the end of the argument about women in leadership because Ruth is a leader and against impossible odds and, and the worst possible qualifications in the circumstance, you know, she's, she has nothing going for her and is just at risk of all the things you've just described. But she, she her vow will drive her actions and so the law permits gleaners to um, go into the fields of Bethlehem. This is, a, this is in Mosaic law that the harvesters, and remember these harvesters are just coming out, these landowners are just coming out of a severe famine. So, you know, they're in famine recovery. Um, but they are, they are told by the law that they can clear their field one time. They can't go back if they miss anything. And they're to leave the edges in the corners of their field unharvested. But there's no definition of how wide an edge is or how deep a corner. So it sort of puts them in an interesting position. And... Gleaning, you would go home with maybe a handful of grain. It's picking up the scraps. And what I've said before is that the law says, let them glean. The widow, the orphan, the foreigner, um, and the poor. Um, the law is is to enable them to go into the fields and it's a place where you can be harmed. And it's very clear in the book of Ruth that she was taking that risk. Um, both Boaz and Naomi um, raised the matter of possible harm in the field. Right. Yep. So, um, but anyway, she, the, the letter of the law says, let them glean, but the spirit of the law says, feed them. And Ruth lives on the hungry side of the law. And every time she, all of her conversations with Boaz are about Mosaic law. And he is in impeccable compliance with Mosaic law. He's letting gleaners come in his field. She doesn't want to take home scraps to Naomi. And so she asks if she can glean 
where freshly cut grain lies on the field. That's what scholars have come to the conclusion that the, it's a difficult Hebrew text that talks about what she's asking for. But it's very clear um, by by Boaz's response that she, he gets it. And um, Boaz is 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 a man, as I said, of impeccable compliance with Mosaic law. He is a man to be admired for all the right reasons, but he changes and he grows because he listens to her and he gets what she's trying to do and he gets behind every initiative she puts forward on Naomi's behalf. She's fighting for Naomi. She's not flirting with the landowner. Um, the the differential in their in power between Ruth and Boaz is chilling, but he will put his male power and privilege behind her efforts. He doesn't shed his male power and privilege; he employs it for the good of others, which is is something to ponder. Um, but anyway, at the end of the day. Instead of bringing home bruises and tears and a story of rape, she lugs home 29 pounds of winnowed barley. It is the mother load. And Naomi, who is grieving and despairing of God's chesed, this stubborn, voluntary, costly, relentless love of God, when she sees the load of grain, she says he has not forgotten his head. And, and, you know, on an ordinary, regular trip to the grocery store, she never would have noticed. <laughs> right. You know, right. in her adversity, in her poverty, in her affliction, a load of barley speaks God's chesed to her. And this is the turning point for Naomi. Then she becomes a chesed giver. And God is not going to explain to Naomi why all of that calamity fell on her. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me go back to that just one second. I want to, I want to just pause here and say to anyone who's listening, who's in grief right now, um, that I hope this is ministering to you, and and I would even challenge you to consider um, where has God's Hesed love showed up for you, and and as Carolyn has so beautifully laid out, it doesn't always happen in spectacular ways. Like it's happened in in is happening in a very ordinary way, a sack of grain, and I would just really urge our listeners to um, to be seeking out God's Hesed right now in your loss, because I know, I know that that, what you just shared, it, it, it matters. It, some of us are going through that right there and need to hear that. So, um, let me also backtrack us a little bit because when you talk about the gleaning and Boaz has a, you know, the, the law gives a standard, but it doesn't exactly say what that is. And so they have to make a decision at, uh, you know, yeah. how much of the corner am I going to let someone have? And you make yeah. the statement about the, that the natural human inclination is to be a minimalist when it comes to obeying scripture. And that Boaz actually sees what Ruth is doing is pushing him beyond the letter, but to the spirit to go beyond being a min- minimalist in, in his generosity. 
And so I was wondering if you could talk to where do you see um, God maybe tapping us right now as Christians in America and saying to us, hey, you're behaving like minimalists. And perhaps this is a place he actually wants to reveal his unbounded love, as you call it, rather than just here's the little corner you can have. And then also, since you already mentioned it, this this disparity of power and privilege that's on display in this field um, and how God is actually showing us how power perhaps is supposed to be used. Can you speak to how that also might be applying to us Christians in America today? Just a few loaded questions. (laughs) Well, you know, I think we define Christianity by going to church, reading your Bible, witnessing on the job, or, you know, it's things you can tick off. But real Christianity is going to show up in the pandemic. It's going to show up in how we battle through these hard times. And I think, you know, one of the things that, has happened for me in this pandemic and the book of the book of Ruth just keeps on giving. I can, I've written two books about it and already there's material for a third, but one of the things the book of Ruth teaches is that everything matters. The smallest thing, a load of barley and maybe You know, we can't see signs of God's love for us, but maybe we can show God's love Mm -hmm. to somebody else. And one of the things that's happened to me is that I had a schedule when, when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden conferences were being canceled and, you know, everything collapsed. And what I ended up doing was taking care of my two little granddaughters, five and six years old. And for the, you know, five, roughly five months out of the past, since the pandemic, they've been here. And, you know, you could, you could think that, oh, you know, my ministry has collapsed. I, but I have wondered if the most important thing I've ever done is to spend time with those two little girls. Cause I don't know what their how their story is going to play out and I don't know what God is doing, but that's where I think, you know, and um, I think we all have to wrestle with that, that the grief is real, that the fallenness of the world is real, that we are not going to be untouched by that that Naomi and Ruth went to their graves grieving their losses, that it doesn't matter how many good things can happen after a loss like what they've suffered, you grieve. Right. And grief is a real part of life. And those are the places where we wrestle with God. Those are the places where he takes us deeper. And, you know, this pandemic, as awful as it is, is important. And, you know, we're all ticking off the time waiting for a vaccine or a cure, you know, so we can resume life as normal. And 
this is this is important. This is an important time. Um, the wrestlings and the questions matter. And um, you know, thank God for Naomi and her struggle. And there's been more than once when I've found myself sitting next to her wondering the same things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and God doesn't explain himself. But what he does do is he speaks to her empty soul through the, the actions of others, ordinary actions of others. And she deepens in her understanding of God's chesed. It's the bedrock of God people. It's not just love, love. It's it's a whole new genre of love. And it's what God's people depend upon and what we try and learn to show to others because it's sacrificial, it's costly, it's voluntary, and it is relentless. And it is because of God's character. It's not because everything's pretty in our lives. And Naomi becomes the theologian of Hesed because God is is preparing her for a vital mission because she's going to end up raising the grandson of King David. And the, and the theology of Hesed passes from Naomi to Obed to Jesse, his son, and on to King David, who passes it on to us when he writes, Surely goodness and Hesed will follow me all the days. I mean, we don't talk about Naomi as a theologian, but suffering produces better theology than prosperity. Hmm. That's beautifully said. Yeah, and I I love, like, so um, let me pause here. I'm trying to decide if I want to pause or not. Hold on. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to pause. I want to say... I think it's so critical that we hear perspectives from female theologians like you, Carolyn, and many others. Um, in, in my doctoral program, one of the things I learned is that women actually see things in the text and ask questions and, and look at interdependent um, relationships. They look at relational dynamics in ways that men don't, and a lot of that has to do with how we're socialized. But I think it's so important that we talk about women as theologians and that we actually... Um, put some female theologians forth for people to understand that women can think this way and that we actually need that type of thinking because your interpretation of Ruth is just like this prime example because we have been taught that Ruth is about a story of a damsel in distress waiting for Prince Charming to rescue her and therefore that is every woman's story. And then I hear the way you teach it and and what you're seeing and I'm thinking... People didn't see that before because the truth is we've had mostly white male Western descent eyes on the text interpreting it for us, seeing it for us. So I just want to say thank you for the hard work you're doing, but also just for all of you listeners out there, tune into female scholars. Let them speak to you. They will show you things you haven't seen before. And by the way, if this podcast is speaking to you, consider passing it on to one of your friends because they too need to hear this. And I would love for you to subscribe to Jackie Always Unplugged. I've got to keep asking for that, and I really appreciate it if you do that. But I want to go back to the power and privilege thing with Boaz because, you know, as you say, um, 
Naomi gets hope from this sack of barley that shows up and she has this plan she puts in place for Ruth because she doesn't want to see Ruth left after she passes in destitute either, right? So she starts to do hesed toward Ruth. And Boaz is this interesting interplay in the middle of this. Um, I, I love it, right? Like, so she, let's talk about, um, and we're going to get to the power of how Ruth, I want I want to get to the point of how Ruth actually again challenges um, a man who has power and position to use his power and position to go beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law and how he actually expands and actually becomes more generous, more integritous. Like we see him grow because of this woman pushing him for more. So Naomi mm-hmm. comes up with this divisive plan, right? And, um, and it, she thinks it's going to secure Ruth's uh, future and she gets her all spiffied up and sends her out to the threshing floor to basically do a, a proposal, wedding proposal to Boaz. And, and Ruth, once again, finds her voice, and she basically throws the script out the window. So tell us what happens, and then, like, let's talk a little bit more about power, the, the dis- disparity between, you know, power and privilege and how it's to be used, at least from what we can see in this story. What, what is God trying to tell us about that? Well, yes, Naomi is concerned about Ruth's future. And what she's, what she is, her scheme involves is for, for Ruth to ask for mercy. So it's not, here's this chick (laughs) that you've been waiting for. Um, It's, she's, she wants Ruth to be under the protective umbrella of a man, which is utterly essential under patriarchy. The two women are at total risk right. with the male family member to protect them. Right. And um, Ruth and uh, Naomi knows Ruth will be stranded in a foreign country and, you know, at her risk level will escalate at, at Naomi's death. Right. And let me so just, pa- let me just pause here. Cause we've got to remember audience. We're talking about an immigrant from another nation, a foreign nation, and basically the equivalent of an undocumented woman. And yep. if, if Ruth, if Naomi dies, that's who she is totally without anything. I mean, it's, it's a very precarious, dangerous place to be. Okay, go ahead. So what is going to happen in this threshing floor scene? And I hope people will read the book of Ruth after they listen to this, but also, you know, read, what I've what I've written about it, Naomi is becoming a hesed giver. She is making. I, I liken her to um, giving the widow's might because Na- Ruth is all she has, and she's giving her up. Mm. Um, so this is the threshing floor chapter in the book of Ruth is intensely gospel because all three characters. Are, are laying down their lives for others. Naomi is, is sacrificing all she has for the sake of Ruth. Ruth goes to Boaz, and it is a dangerous situation. When I um, finished, when this Finding God in the Margins rolled off the presses, we had the explosion of Me Too and Church Too, and I thought, oh my goodness, mm. <laughs> the book is a Me Too story. 
it's the me too that didn't happen. Yeah. But you know, when, when this young immigrant presents herself in a petitioning posture to this man in the dark of night at a time when they're celebrating and carousing, you know, it's not really the safest time to be out alone as a young woman. Um, he could do anything he wanted to yes, her he can. Yeah, and get away with it. Who's looking, you know, and if it was a, he said, he said, she said, nobody would take her word for his. That's right. I mean, he's a, a, a prominent leader in the community. We see the same old scenario that we see so often um, in me too and church Too scandals. Um, but it's a Me Too story that doesn't happen because Boaz knows someone is looking. Mm. And he lives before the face of God, and so does Ruth. And she is supposed to lie at his feet and wait for him to tell her what to do, and he's going to know what this is about. We need to remember that this is a polygamous culture. Nobody would blink and, you know, among the first readers of this book at the thought of polygamy, it's everywhere. It's the quest for sons. And so if you can get two wives pregnant and with sons, you just doubled your stature in the community. Um, but anyway, Boaz, an old, he's an older man. He would not be a man of standing and respect if he had hung around as a bachelor and not gotten busy producing sons for his family. He would be a, he would be a disgrace. Right. So I believe he was a, he was a married man. He could have been a widow, widower, or he could have had two other wives, you know, it, it doesn't matter to people in that culture reading the story. And, and Naomi is, you know, Ruth is barren. So this is, this marriage would be for the protection of Ruth. And so, but Ruth comes to him and instead of doing what Naomi said, she throws the book at him, two mosaic laws that he is completely beyond the reach of. The Leverett law says that when a man dies without a male heir, his blood brother is supposed to wear, to marry the widow and the son born to that union will take the dead man's place on the family tree and also his inheritance. So it's a, it's a call to sacrifice. And um, she also includes the kinsman redeemer law, which is about real estate that when some man's property um if he falls on hard times and is compelled to sell his property, the nearest relative is to buy that land and it will revert to the original owner. If there is a male heir in the year of Jubilee. So it's both of them are calls to sacrifice and Boaz isn't a blood brother to Elimelech and he's not the nearest relative. So, you know, he's off the hook and instead he tells her, you know, there's a nearer relative will present this to him. And if he says no, because it's, it's really um, 
a letter of the law interpretation, not uh, not as spirit of the law interpretation, not letter. <laughs> and if he refuses, Boaz says, I will do it. I mean, this, so all three of them, Baron Ruth is presenting herself, volunteering to give birth to a son for Naomi. And Boaz is willing to make the sacrifice even after going through years of famine. I mean, it's just, it's incredible what all three of them are doing. I think the three of them are a blessed alliance. Mm. And interestingly enough, the purposes of God for the world are moving forward through their actions and they never knew it, which I love because, you know, you always think you're going to see how God might use you, but um, we have no clue what God is doing through us. Right. And in fact, I tell people, you know, hey, if you think, you know, like, especially as you get a little older, you start thinking, what was this all for? Right. Whether that's because you raised kids and you gave everything you had for it. And then your kids are wayward. Right. And you think, what did I do that for? Right. Like I, I often will refer women to the book of Ruth and say, I want you to think, read the whole book and then ask yourself the question. They did end up with a baby in chapter four and, and then they died. And they had no idea that Jesus would come from that lineage. They had no idea the Savior of the world would come through this. They died not knowing what, could, what was going to happen with the, with the small responsibilities, which, you know, the, the whole world isn't watching this activity that's going on, and yet it's so significant, right? And to me, it reminds me, I don't have to see everything to know, to have faith and trust that God is actually going to use this stuff for good down the centuries. And I don't have to see it to know that that's true. It's even bigger than that because the book of Ruth does not have a prophet or a priest or a voice from heaven uh, or a vision. What we, what they're doing is frozen to (laughs) the next right thing. You know, they're just, they're dealing with, hunger and they're dealing with a family that's dying out that it's it's all centered in the workplace and the legal system this is not a churchy story you know this is not somebody preaching a sermon or you know leading a bible study it's somebody doing the next right thing and it's it's it means everything matters Nothing is incidental because God is at work through his image bearers. That's how he does things. And, you know, the most insignificant thing we've each done could end up being the most significant. Right. And we may, we may never know. Yeah. We probably won't know, but we can look at this book and trust that it's being used profoundly, whether we see it or not. We can trust that because mm-hmm. how this ends. Let's go to, because we got to kind of wrap this up here. Let's go to the scene where Boaz does go to the city gates. And um, tell us what he does there. And I love how you say it's almost like he's learned from Ruth. <laughs> and, and then why is this part of the story raises the subject? Why does this part of the story raise the subject of the value of women? Well, it's all about women. You know, both women's stories were over um, in chapter one. 
according to the culture. And what you have is that Boaz is, is really going to throw his weight around in this, in this final scene in the, in the legal system of Bethlehem. And uh, one of the questions that got asked early about uh, from one of my editors but he said, how did he get away with what he did? Mm. And I thought, yeah, you know, because nobody objects. Nobody says, you know, like the nearer relative would have just inherited Elimelech's land. He wouldn't have had to put money into it and risk losing his investment if she could, if Ruth conceived a, a son. And who says he has to marry Ruth? You know, it's right. just, none of, this is all a stretch and there's not a whisper of objection to Boaz. That just tells you how powerful he was. And, you know, he, he says, Naomi is selling her land. Who says Naomi is selling her land? When did widows start inheriting land? Right. That's our, but, our listeners may not know that they may not realize like when he says, you know, I'm going to, we're selling Naomi's land. Even the fact that he mentioned that it was Naomi's rather than her husband's. Yes. It doesn't go yeah. to women. No. Yeah. So go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, so he's, I mean, he's full throttle with his power and privilege and it's going to cost him. It's, it's not, where he's going to be the kingpin when it's over, it's going to cost him. And the people in the community are so overwhelmed by what they're seeing happen, and especially by what they're seeing in Ruth, that they, before, she, before Boaz marries her and before she conceives at all, they embrace her at the highest level of Israelite life as one of Israel's great matriarchs. Mm. You know, it's, so here's this little undocumented gleaner. Uh, it's just amazing. It's just, it's the gospel is what it is. It's yeah. the gospel. And, you know, you know, men think they have to shed their power and privilege, but power and privilege are are stewardship issues. And so is the female voice. You know, I'm, I'm through talking about this as a gender issue. It's a stewardship issue, whether we, you know, keep quiet and back off, or if we use the gifts and opportunities that God entrusts to us, um, you know, we have to account for what we did. And all of these men who have said, you know, you need to be silent and submissive, submissive aren't going to be standing next to us saying, well, I told her to do that. Right. <laughs> and before Jesus and I, and I, you know, the book of Ruth changed everything for me. And I often say when I, when, when I stand before Jesus, I'd rather be explaining why I did too much than why I did too little. Yeah, it's a little hard to, um, when you think about some of the soft patriarchy that still exists in, in some of our churches in America, complementarianism, um, 
this idea that men are to lead and women are to follow, men are to make decisions and women are to submit and all of those things. Then you read the book of Ruth and it throws all of that out the door, right? It dismantles this. And and I think it dismantles this notion that, that you know, when a woman rises up, it, it's um, emasculating to a man because we don't see that in the scripture here. Um, so Well, and she, she's not fighting for a piece of the pie, no. the power that's a non-issue here. What she's doing is she's stepping out. She's using her voice. She's taking risks and she's fighting for Naomi. She's not fighting for Ruth. She's sacrificing Ruth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, our gender debate has us fighting for the piece of the pie. And, um, you know, that's just playing into the same old patriarchal way of thinking instead of saying, no, we have power. We do have power and we do have responsibility and our brothers need us. It's the way God meant for his world to work. And we are not adversaries to them. We are allies. And um, it's we are so entrenched in this way of thinking that we've we've lost the gospel in our relationships. Who I'm gonna um, I'm gonna sit on that one. Let, let, we're gonna we're gonna end on that right there. That was the statement. So um, I do want to conclude. I want to thank you, Carolyn. Um, every time I I learn from you in scripture from scripture, I am I am blown away at your scholarly mind, at your heart. I think God is. Um, speaking so profoundly and prophetically through you at this time in history. So I want to thank you for giving us a glimpse of what's in your book. And by the way, uh, those of you listening, you're just getting a taste. So I really want to encourage you to go buy her book. It's called Finding God in the Margins. It deals with all kinds of issues, but more than that, I think it'll speak to your heart about the very things that you yourself wrestle with. And I'm having a book discussion um, through the Marcella Project, and it's sold out, so you can't come, sorry. Um, But I do want to suggest get the book. Gather gather some friends in your backyard or on Zoom and discuss these profound issues. I mean, they're transformative issues. Um, And I also want to ask you not to forget to share this podcast and to subscribe, subscribe and promote female voices, scholars, theologians, thought leaders. Help us get women's voices out there. So, Carolyn, before we close, where can our listeners find you, learn more about what you're writing about, what you're saying? Like, where do they go? Well, I on, on my website, which um, is my name, carolyncustisjames.com, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter, too, so... Yeah, you have one of those names, Carolyn, that I never just call you Carolyn. You're always Carolyn Custis James. Do, do, other, do other people do that? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you know, some people you get in a rhythm and their, their name just sounds like it should be one name. Carolyn Custis James. <laughs> Carolyn Custis James. So thank you for giving me your time, Carolyn. I, I thank you. And I, I pray for those of you listening that the Spirit has spoken to you. Well, blessings on your ministry, Jackie. We need you. Thank you. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. 
You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.